The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Good morning. Please open up your copy of the scriptures to Isaiah chapter 1. For those who are unfamiliar, let me share with you a little bit about what we do at Redeeming Grace Fellowship in terms of preaching. Normally, what we do is from September all the way through to the beginning of summer, we preach through the New Testament. Right now, for example, I've been preaching through the book of Acts. However, in the summer months, June, July, and August, we take our attention to the Old Testament. And for the last four summers, we were hearing about the book of Genesis. And what a blessing that was, to hear God's glory revealed in the covenants that he made throughout the book of Genesis. However, we are going to shift our attention a little bit farther forward ahead in the Old Testament this summer, and we're going to set our focus on the prophet Isaiah. Now, this book naturally divides itself up into about three sections. So what we are going to do is, Lord willing, divide this up over the next three summers. Theologians have separated this book in a way that I think is very helpful. Part one is called The Book of the King. That's what we're going to focus on this summer. Part two is called The Book of the Servant, and that's what, Lord willing, we will consider next summer. And then the third book is called The Book of the Anointed Conqueror, and Lord willing, we will do that a couple summers from now. Even though Isaiah is much nearer to us in terms of the timeline, I think that we are less familiar with Isaiah than we are with heroes of the faith like Noah or Abraham. And I think in large part, this is simply due to the lack of familiarity that we have with Isaiah. When was the last time that you spent a large portion of your time just reading this wonderful and glorious book? The book of Isaiah is a masterpiece in terms of prophetic literature. It is the premier prophet that we have in our Old Testament canon. Its focus is so centered on the Messiah that this book has been called by many people the fifth gospel. Every single chapter is saturated with the good news about Jesus Christ in one way or another. The New Testament writers clearly loved the book of Isaiah. It is quoted more than any other Old Testament book except the book of Psalms. And it is referenced on more occasions than any other book in the Old Testament. Do you remember when Jesus had an opportunity to preach in his own hometown of Nazareth? As he was standing up, before them and then took the seat before them they handed him a scroll what scroll was it exactly it was from isaiah and he read it and he said today this has been fulfilled in your hearing this book is all about our king jesus so i am really excited to share this book with you over the next couple of summers because i am excited to get to know jesus more with you isaiah reveals that our savior He reveals Jesus to us in such a way that we are designed to understand him and know him in our minds. But much more, it is designed to bring you, just like it did with Isaiah, face to face with Jesus himself. So let's pray now to that end, and then we'll dive into this incredible revelation of God. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that right now, as many people are gathering around a computer screen or a phone screen, that you would cause this medium that is so difficult to use in terms of preaching and hearing the word of God. I pray, Lord, that you would take the foolishness of technology and allow it to cause us to be blown away 
by the amazing nature of your redeeming love. Lord, I pray that as people come before the Bible today, their hearts would be brought low with humility, but their hearts would also be raised up high with worship and praise. God, please bring us face to face with Jesus right now. It is in your precious name that we pray. Amen. In literature, there is a style of writing called in media res. Now, this style literally means to into the middle of things. Uh, it's become a very popular style over the last 70 years because it works really well in terms of filmmaking. And if you've been an avid viewer of television or movies, you've certainly seen in media res all over the place. The opening scene is, of course, filled with action. They want to get, get your attention. They want you to focus on what they're doing. And that leads to a tense moment. Perhaps it leads to the hero about to reach a, a great trial or seemingly an unavoidable death. And then what do they do? They fade to black or cut to black immediately, and then they rewind the tape a couple of days or a couple of weeks, and they begin farther back to fill in the blanks of how did our hero arrive at this point in the story. This is called in media res. But contrary to film historian arguments, that style did not originate with Harry Cohn's writing of the 1947 movie Dead Reckoning, starring Humphrey Bogart. It did not start even against the historians of great literature, they are wrong when they argue that the art form was initiated by Homer or Virgil or the Roman poet Horace. No, this goes back way farther, long before any of those men were alive. The Holy Spirit inspired Isaiah to write this book by beginning in the middle. Here, he gives an introduction to the book by revealing God's argument that is made in the center of the confrontation of Isaiah. Only later in chapter 6, will we rewind and see the initial call to ministry of Isaiah. Verse 1 begins the book this way. It says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, as we progress through the book of Isaiah, what you're going to see is that God speaks to the nation directly on many occasions, but God also always speaks to the kings. And as we will see, each and every one of these kings failed in a variety of ways. And for the most part, those kings outrightly rejected Isaiah's prophecies. However, in the midst of great darkness, eventually God's word is going to grip the heart of Hezekiah and result in a temporary reformation. So what we see moving forward in this chapter is functionally a courtroom drama. So for the remainder of our time together... I'm going to simply break it up as follows. Point number one, the judge, witnesses, and defendant. Point number two, the charges. Point number three, the sentence. Point number four, the plea. And point number five, the result. We begin with the judge, witnesses, and defendant. Verse two says, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Now here, what we see happening is God is ordering his courtroom. He is the great judge of all the universe. And he calls the heavens and the earth to stand as the two necessary witnesses in his courtroom. This is a common formulation in God's prophecies. I think my favorite example of this is Asaph's first recorded psalm, the Psalm 50, where he, he does the exact same thing, asking the universe to stand in agreement with him as he calls Judah out on the carpet for their evil and rebellion. But as we go through the book of Isaiah, don't be quick to condemn Judah. Be quick to look at your own heart 
and to see that you are just like them. And God is likewise calling the universe as a witness against evil and wickedness that exist in you. There is no sin that God ignores. Your sin matters to God. Now, I'm speaking to those of you who are watching who do not know Jesus as king. He is the magisterial authority of the whole universe. And your responsibility is to bow your knee to him and to follow Jesus all the days of your life. Repent of your sin and turn to King Jesus. But I'm also speaking to believers. I'm speaking to those who have been redeemed. Notice who God is speaking to in verse 2. The defendants are his children. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Christian, brother, sister, you and I need to hear God's call from this book. We need to be transformed. We need to be reformed. We need to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We must not become leeches on the blood of Jesus. God is using Isaiah for us this summer to call us to a deeper love and imitation of the Savior through the pages of this book. So as we now approach our second point, consider the charges, and please know that these are not merely historical accusations against long-dead Israelites. They certainly are that, but these are patterns that arise among the children of God to this day. Verse 3, consider what it says. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Judah does not know. My people do not understand. Church, do you know your master? Have you forgotten? You are not the captain of your ship. You are just a humble servant whose calling is to carry out God's will. My dog, Rupert, many of you have met Rupert, he sometimes will escape out the front door. And obviously, that's not a great thing. He's become less of a flight risk, though, because he's learned something. He has learned that in our kitchen, he has food and water. He has learned that in our bedroom, he has his own doggy bed. He has learned that it is much nicer inside than outside. He knows his master's home. He knows where he's supposed to go. Israel here, Judah, did not remember. They had forgotten that they are supposed to go home to their father. They had misunderstood what they were supposed to do, not by being forgetful primarily, but by being rebellious. Do you forget to come to the feet of Jesus? Do you forget to come before him every day? Is your life marked by consistency in prayer? Are you consistent in your intake of the word of God? Are you hungry to be near God? Are you like Mary who just wants to sit at the feet of Jesus and enjoy him and learn from him and hear his stories and hear his teachings? This is not an arbitrary place for God to start with his charges. This is not an arbitrary place to begin because it is the natural precursor to all spiritual failure. When you fail to acknowledge God in your thinking, when you begin to pursue lesser things, renewal begins in the mind. Transformation of the life begins by renewing your mind. So when you begin to think of lesser things and focus on lesser things and forget your master's house, it is then that you begin pursuing lesser things. And God then continues his charges in verse 4. He says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Judah. They are utterly estranged. Now notice, 
the reason that they are estranged from God. God has not moved anywhere. He has not left them behind. It is they who have moved themselves away from the Lord. He has remained faithful to his covenant. They have pursued other things and failed to honor him in their lives. So in verse 5, God explains the cause of their demise. He says, why will you still be struck down? In other words, there's an option here. Why are you choosing destruction? Why will you continue to rebel? And then he answers the question for them. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. John Watts summarizes this by saying that God is calling them bad people, surrounding themselves with bad company, and consistently doing bad things. I like that definition. The sickness of the head that is being referenced is denoting stubbornness. It's not talking about mental illness. It's talking about a refusal to acknowledge reality, a refusal to obey what is clearly the right move, what is the good thing for them. He continues in verse 6, and he says, From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. He's referring to Judah like a physical corpus, like a body. And he says there's nothing good there but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened up with oil. In other words, you have open sores, Judah, but you won't even put a band-aid on it. You have gaping gashes across your stomach, but you won't clean it out and bandage it. You have the right medicine to take, but you refuse to consume it. How often is that true of us? We know that our sin is killing us. We know that our disobedience is destroying us, yet we hold on to it. We believe the lies of sin that if we just keep trying it, it will eventually satisfy. We refuse to confess. We refuse to repent because we fear for our reputation, like somehow looking good is better than pursuing God. So we walk through life with self-inflicted, pus-filled, oozing sores, and we refuse to go to the great physician for true healing. That's what he's saying to Judah. Then in verse 7, God reveals that there has already been some form of punishment from the Lord. There's debate about exactly what kind of military attack he's referencing here against Israel or, or Judah. We're not exactly sure. It could be the Syro-Ephraimite incursions of AD 735, or perhaps more likely it was a reference to when Sennacherib came down and attacked the northern kingdom in 701 AD. Now remember, in AD we're counting down and not counting up in numbers. We're going to learn more about both of those invasions later on as they are chronicled in Isaiah. We don't know which one he's referencing here, but the point is God is showing them that that was just a warning shot. There's much more to come if they refuse to turn their hearts to God. The Lord says in verse 7, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is a des as desolate and overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, and be or like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, Judah was supposed to be a city on a hill. It was supposed to be a beacon of truth. They were described as being a kingdom and a palace in different places in the Old Testament. Yet, what did they become? They have become nothing more than a flimsy booth in a vineyard. Nowadays, we have scarecrows that keep 
birds and pests away from the produce that is being grown in the fields. But back then, they would set up a booth in the center of the field where workers could go for shade, or they could come out of and scare away birds and things that might come into the fields, or even to protect them from those who might come in and steal the produce. But that's not what we want to be like. That's not what Judah should be like. They're supposed to be a fortress, not a little lodge in a cucumber field. What is this lodge in a cucumber field? It's nothing more than a bunch of glorified cardboard glued together around a balsa wood frame. It's pathetic. It's frail. It's limited. It is ugly. It is finite. It is not this beautiful, beautiful representation of the kingdom of God that they were called to be. And then God goes even farther. He compares Judah to the most evil cities in the history of the world, namely Sodom and Gomorrah. And he doesn't just say that you're like them. He calls them by those names. Now, I hope that nobody ever accuses you in any way of being like that evil dictator Adolf Hitler. But even if they do, there is a big difference between somebody saying that you are like Hitler and then coming to you and calling you by name, hey, hey, Adolf Hitler, come here. Now, consider God is the judge sitting on the stand looking down at Judah, and he says in verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He is referring to them as Sodom and Gomorrah. There is nothing I can imagine that would be more insulting to their pride. God is intentionally seeking to bring them low, but he is doing so because he is rightly calling them out for their own sin. But what sin? Here's where we get personal. Here's where I want you to pay very close attention, church. This is where the charges go from being general to being very specific. And this is where I want you professing believers to be very aware. He is going to accuse the Judahites of worshiping him. He is going to accuse them of worshiping him. Get this right. He is going to accuse them of sacrificing. He is going to accuse them of praying. He is going to accuse them of doing exactly what he commanded them to do. But they were doing these things with the wrong heart. Verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of burying, uh, bearing them. When you spread out your hands, which means to pray, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. In these verses, we finally see the charges stick. God is sick and tired of fake, meaningless worship. Their actions were nothing more than a perverted imitation of reverence. There was no real adoration of God in their heart. There was no reverence before him. Let me ask you, how often does this describe you? How often do you go to your Bible and you open it up and five minutes later, you close it, never having, been, having looked at the face of Jesus, just reading some words, never actually considering 
the God who spoke these words to you? How often do you go into a church service where you simply walk in and walk out without ever even setting your heart towards God in thankfulness or praise? What about your giving? This giving that you offer in the offering plate. For those who are supporting Redeeming Grace during this hard time, I want to personally thank you. But I want to encourage you to only do so if you're doing so with a heart of thanksgiving to God. You are not earning anything like these people thought they were. I was just speaking to my grandfather a few days ago, and he was sharing with me his testimony of salvation. And he was explaining to me that for about 40 years, he attended church on a regular basis. He would go in, and I quote, he said, I would listen to the preacher, I would give God my dollar, and then I'd get out of there as fast as I could. He didn't know Jesus. He didn't love Jesus. He had never read the Bible, he said. That was not worship that he was doing during those times. But eventually, what happened? God captured his heart, and God drew him near. And God is not interested in your half-hearted, watered-down, lukewarm forms of worship. God wants your heart. He wants all of you, everything that is in you. True worship requires a laying down of all of your aims so that you can wholeheartedly run after Jesus with full abandon. So now we arrive at point number three, the sentence. Here is where God is going to explain what they must now do because of their sin. It is at this juncture, God, the righteous judge, sets forth his judgment. Notice the patience and long-suffering of God. He is giving them another chance to learn from their foolishness and to turn to him in repentance. Verse 16, he says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Notice that God's call to them is in regards to holiness. God is deeply concerned about how the lives of his people operate. The vile false gospel of easy believism teaches that you can just pray a prayer or walk an aisle or get baptized in water and all of a sudden you're good and you can do literally anything that you want and God is now obligated to allow you into heaven. That is a teaching straight from Satan. Jesus has sheep. He has a people. They will hear his voice and they will follow him. But following him means actually following him. And if anyone would follow after Jesus, they must walk as Jesus walked. Salvation is necessarily followed by sanctification. So if there is no transformed life, it is an evidence of an unconverted soul. So God basically lets them off with a stern warning here. It's like a judge saying, look, kid, I don't want to see you back here in my courtroom. You go out there and you follow the rules. You don't break those laws anymore. I don't want you to come back in here. He is not sentencing them here to destruction, at least not yet. But then we see something very interesting happening in the unfolding drama of this heavenly courtroom. God makes a plea. Now, generally speaking, it is the guilty party who makes a plea to the judge. In this instance, we see the great judge of the universe step down from the bench, approach the criminal's table, and pull up a chair. He lowers himself to our level, and he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Who are we? Who are we that God would come and reason together with us? 
It's obvious that his thoughts and ways are higher than our own. It's clear that we can never persuade or convince him to change. It is not a conversation whereby we are seeking to cause him to conform to our wills. No, if we are reasoning together, it is in only one direction that we can move, which is to conform to him. He is always right. So if there's a dispute or difference of opinion, we are always in the wrong. God is making an amazing illustrative promise to him, to them. He said that he is going to do a work of restoration that they cannot do themselves. So hidden right here in the middle of chapter 1 in verse 18, this is the key to the book of Isaiah. This is the promised gospel that will unfold through every chapter. God will make us clean. There are many different approaches to parenting. If you're a parent, you do it differently than I do, and a lot of times you're probably right. Even inside of families, some children require different approaches than others. But there is at least one universal truth that every parent, whether they are American or whether they are Chinese, whether they are from this continent or another, no matter what nationality or language they speak, no matter if they are older parents or younger parents, and no matter if they are Christian or atheist, every parent agrees on one thing. And that is this. If you have a child in a room with white carpet, you do not give them something to drink that is red. Why don't you do that? Because there is inevitably a magnetic force that will exist causing the cup to fall out of their hands and onto the carpet where there will then be a gigantic red stain that you cannot, no matter how hard you try, remove. You will eventually have to just give up and buy a new carpet. So here's the point. This cherry juice has left a permanent splotch right in the middle of Israel. Actually, God is using the most extreme example possible. There is nothing that was in existence at this time that was more likely to leave a permanent stain than something that was scarlet, something that was deep red. Most likely, the thing he is referencing here, the thing that would come to the mind of the original readers, would have been red wine stains. And no matter how hard you scrub them, you cannot get them out. They are permanently marked by a crimson stain. But God, being rich in mercy, takes that stain away and restores your garments to purity. That is the point. He took that wine-soaked garment and he returned it to spotless white and he gives it to you freely. Now Isaiah does not tell us how that happens right here. We have to wait for that mystery to unfold later on in Isaiah. But I can't wait, so I'm just going to tell you what happened by reminding you of the gospel, which is of first importance. We are sinners. We are stained with sin, and it is our own fault. We have taken it, and we have not just accidentally spilled it on ourselves. We have intentionally pursued rebellion. And when God said, don't you spill that cup, we took it and rebelliously poured it all over our shirt because we did not want that God to rule over us. Yet God, being rich in mercy, loved us, and he gave us a Savior. And as the song goes, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. How did he do that? He did that by taking our sin on himself at the cross. In the book of Zechariah, we get this amazing picture of Joshua the high priest wearing those filthy garments. Imagine this picture here. And what we see in that passage is that there's a Messiah coming, an advocate, who gives a righteousness to him, gives him a white robe. But what it doesn't show you there either is that Jesus took the sinful robe and put it on himself. 
At the cross, Jesus bore actual sin for actual sinners like you and me. He took our sin on himself, as it says in 1 Peter. He bore it in his body on the tree, and he died for it. He died to pay for sin. He died so that we might have that righteousness return. That sin stain that we have poured all over ourselves, we don't have to bear that any longer because Jesus died for sinners like you and me. So I want you to know something. We all need this forgiveness. But there's a warning that comes next. That's our fourth point. The judge now places this warning before Judah and says there are two possible paths. There are two directions that you can go. These lay before you in verse 19 and 20. He says, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God laid out for Judah an ultimatum here. There was a way that led to life and restoration and a way that led to destruction by the hand of the Lord. And for those who know Christ, who don't know Christ, if you don't know Jesus, I call on you today to see the love of God and come to him. If you are one of his sheep, you will hear his voice and you will come. And I will say to you now, do not test the patience of the Lord for another day, but run to the Savior for salvation. We come now to point number five, the result. Sadly, Judah did not heed the warnings. They did not listen to Isaiah. So Isaiah reveals exactly what's coming to Jerusalem. He flashes forward and shows what is going to happen to them because they have not paid attention. They have not turned from their rebellion. Verse 21 says, How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs to after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies, and I will avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you, and I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together. And those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed, for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. So here we come to the conclusion of chapter 1. You see that even in the midst of of the judgment that God pours out over Judah, God is promising restoration. He kept a remnant throughout all of the judgments that were to come. And as we walk through Isaiah together this summer, watch for this amazing balance that we will see. God is judge, and he will always judge sin. But God is also merciful. And to those who hear his voice and who repent of their sin, he is always there to forgive. We have much to look forward to in Isaiah this summer, and I encourage you to begin reading through this book on your own so that you're well prepared for these sermons as we hear them together. Let me just pray for us now. 
God, I thank you for this time before your word. And I ask that every single hearer would be changed by Isaiah chapter 1. That your Holy Spirit would apply it to us. I ask for those, Lord, who are unbelievers. Especially, Lord, I think of those who are young in our church. Who are growing up under the constant preaching and proclamation of the gospel. Lord, I pray for them that you would show them the importance of knowing Jesus. Not just knowing about Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would see that their actions of just attending church are not pleasing to God. That there must be a heart of worship. Lord, I pray for those who are on the fence, as it were. Who, they look at themselves and they see their their life and recognize that I kind of match up here with what's going on in Judah. Lord, I pray that you would draw them close to Jesus so that they would pursue him with their whole heart. If they don't know Jesus, let this be the day of their salvation. And if they do know Jesus, Lord, may they come to a point today where they understand more clearly that they must run towards him with full abandon. Lord, I pray lastly for those who are strong in the faith. I pray, Lord, that we would come to a text like this and remember it's not because of anything that we have done, but because of Jesus who forgave us, who gave us clothes that were white, not by our own doing, but because he has purified us by his death at the cross. We thank you, Lord, for what you have done in your son Jesus on our behalf. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.